Hi everyone and welcome to the PERMA podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. It's really great to have you all here today and uh, I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, It's a friend of mine who I've known for about five or six years and um, she's written her first book um, which has just come out um, called I Love Jesus and I Want to Die which is a really interesting title and a powerful title and um yeah we're going to talk about it today welcome to the show sarah robinson thank you so much for having me james it's good to be here yeah it's really great to have you on the show um yeah i'm really um really excited to have this conversation about what is a great book and a really important topic um yeah so tell us a bit about kind of your story and how this book came about absolutely so I have lived with depression and anxiety for as long as I can remember. I don't really remember a time before I was depressed. Even as a small child, I would have intrusive thoughts of suicide, and I just didn't know that wasn't normal. And so I never really talked to anybody about it. I never really got any help for it as a young person and Fast forward several years, I came to faith in a church that really focused on um, the power of God to heal and um, really kind of emphasized and maybe in some ways overemphasized some promises in scripture to the point where there was an expectation that if you were sick or um, struggling financially or um, you know, had unresolved depression and anxiety that there was something wrong, lack of faith, lack of prayer, sin issue in your life, things like that. And so fast forward many years after I started getting healthier, getting some help. And, you know, we can talk about what that looked like, if you like, um, there were a couple of very high profile celebrity suicides and, Um, It was 2018, right after Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade had both died by suicide. And I just had this frustration kind of well up in me about all of the unhelpful and hurtful things I had heard Christians say over the years. And I just kind of had this frustration, like, oh my gosh, here it comes. Or people are going to start saying things like, well, if they were just Christians, this wouldn't have happened. Or if, um, you know, I can't believe that someone would um, do this. It's so selfish. Suicide is so selfish. Or, you know, you just need to pray more or things like that. And so I wrote this article out of that frustration called, I love Jesus, but I want to die. What you need to know about suicide And it was really just kind of taking some of those myths um, that are in the church and breaking them down and sharing my experience. You know, it's not just somebody who doesn't pray enough. It's not just somebody who's selfish or self-focused. It's not um, just feeling sad and kind of broke down those myths and you know, initially I thought I had a very small blog at the time, thought that, you know, maybe a few hundred people, maybe a thousand people would read it. And that would be like crazy and amazing to me. And, um, it started getting shared around the internet and 
within a few days, it was going crazy viral. And people were coming to my website. People were coming to the other sites that it was published on. It was crashing my website. We had to like upgrade our server and all of this stuff. And I was just so overwhelmed, um, you know, kind of like, oh my gosh, why is everybody looking at me? Like, <laughs> stop coming to my website. But also just realizing people are desperate to have this conversation. People are desperate for real vulnerability and honesty about what it's like to actually be a person of faith, but still struggle with your mental health. And so about a month after I originally published the article, I got um, an email from a literary agent. And she said that she'd seen a Facebook friend share the article. Um, And her Facebook friend had said, if I had read this two years ago, my son might still be alive. And she said, when I read that, I knew there was something to this. And then I read your article and read it again. And I knew that, that there's a book in this. And so she actually reached out to me. I wasn't intending to write a book. I wasn't planning on being the suicide girl or anything like that. But um, I think just because of the desperation of people to have this conversation um, and the way that it resonated so much, that's really kind of where the book came from. And so, yeah, she talked me into writing a book and working with her. And three years later, here we are. Yeah, amazing, an amazing story. Um, yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And yeah, this, this stuff really does resonate with people. It's a really, really important conversation. And it's been going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. Mental health and the church and, and mental health and faith um, and just generally mental health. Yeah. Um, it's been going on for a long time. We've been in a, I've said this before, we've been, in kind of a mental health crisis for quite a while. It's just that people yes. haven't heard about it um, or haven't talked about it as much. And obviously with the last year or so with the pandemic, it's it's become a lot more heightened and people have become a bit more aware of the need for this conversation. And, Absolutely. Um, because so many people's mental health has been damaged by the pandemic. Um, and uh, there's, there's been a huge rise in, in, in mental illness because since the pandemic, um, which is not surprising whatsoever. Um, sure. Uh, and uh, and yeah, there's this yeah, the the crisis that we already had has got worse, and um, it's, so we need to have these conversations. And and you know, I've, I've had a few guests on before. We've talked about the importance of churches being a safe space for, for mental illness. And, yes. And and the church and the work that churches need to do. So. Um, yeah, it's really great that we're having that we're having this conversation. You've written this book because um, we need we need stories like this. So, um, some of the things that you talk about in the book, are, the book's really great because it's it's kind of your story, but it's also very practical. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of advice, a lot of practices that you suggest. Um, it's it's. It kind of it's like sitting alongside you, um, but also giving you giving you wisdom and advice for your own journey as well. And that's that's really really 
positive. So one of the things that you talk about in your own story um, is kind of, tell us a bit about your struggles with with your depression in the church and how you kind of found your way through to, to getting the support that you need. Mm-hmm. Well, as I mentioned, I, you know, came to faith in a small faith community and, you know, we had this kind of almost prosperity gospel emphasis. You know, we weren't like the type of church that says, if you give enough money, God's going to give you like a sports car or a jet or things like that. But definitely there was some subtle emphasis, a little bit of the name it and claim it. Um, I talk about how um, you weren't really supposed to say anything negative because we believed the power of life and death is in the tongue. You know, that's in scripture, that's in Proverbs. Um, And so if we said anything negative, like if I were to say I'm depressed or I'm getting sick or whatever, we would make it even more true with our words. We believed we were like cursing ourselves. And so there was this difficulty in a culture that believed those things with being really open and honest about our pain and our suffering. And so it was it was really hard to open up. And initially when I came to faith, it seemed like everything was going to be great and I was going to get better. And, you know, maybe the thing that had just been missing all along in my life, maybe this thing that had been aching inside of me was that like, you know, the cheesy old saying, like the God-shaped hole in your heart. And so at first I was really hopeful, like, it's going to be great. I'm going to get better. Um, But over time, you know, even though I was doing all the right things, I was checking all the boxes. I was at church every time the doors were open. I was going on mission trips. I was distributing food with our, um, you know, one of the ministries at our church and our community to folks who were hungry. I was leading prayer groups at school. I was doing all the things. Nothing really got better. And so it only increased the shame that's really common with mental illness and the sense of isolation. And then with that, there was this additional layer of, I'm supposed to be a joyful Christian. I'm supposed to have this quote unquote good testimony. And I can't choose joy like people are telling me to. I can't flip this switch. It's nothing's changing. No matter how much I read my Bible, I still feel this ache inside. Maybe God doesn't like me. Maybe God doesn't want to be around me. Maybe, you know, the Bible says God is love, so he has to love me, but he doesn't really care about me. And so I began to despair more and more and, you know, became increasingly suicidal. I started self-harming to cope with the pain. And eventually there were a few there were two couples in my church that really became a source of strength and hope to me. And one, um, I showed up at their house late one night and told them that I'd been struggling with self-harm, told them I was suicidal and was so ashamed, so ashamed. And they looked at me and said, I'm not disappointed in you. And I don't think less of you. 
and God still loves you. I still love you. We still love you. We're going to walk through this with you. And they did. They were like, you're staying with us. And, um, you know, they weren't really like giving me the option. It was like, you're going to, you're going to stay with us until, you know, you're in a safer place. And so it really, for me, even though it would take many years, gosh, it was probably seven years after this before I talked to a doctor, got on medication and found a good therapist. Um, but it really started with someone seeing my pain, seeing my depression and not flinching, not looking away, not being like, oh, you need to do all of these things, but just saying, I love you. And I hate that this is happening. And the things that you believe about yourself aren't true. Um, but I'm not going to just tell you that I'm going to walk with you in it. So that was the beginning of a really long road towards healing for me. Mm. Yeah, and it always begins that way, in a sense. It always begins when we actually name what's going on. Yes. Uh, when, we, when, we, when we call it out for what it is, and when also when other people witness that. Yeah. Um, that is always the beginning of, of, uh, of healing and, and transformation. But, you know, I've talked about that in relation to grief and other, other kinds of trauma on this show, that, you know, we, the beginning of healing is, is to name it, take power yes. over it. Um, because uh, because that robs it of its power in a sense. Yes. Um, because you've acknowledged it what it is. You're not hiding from it anymore. And yeah, and that's powerful. Um, yeah, that that's amazing. That person, that friend who sat with you um, and bore witness to that. That's a really important thing that we can do for others. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's and just, it's so simple. It's. I think so often we get afraid in those situations when someone we care about is struggling. We think that we have to know all of the perfect things to say and have all the answers, but they had no clue what to do. They didn't, you know, know who a good therapist was in our community or um, anything like that. And there's probably things that would have been more helpful, like helping me find a good therapist and things like that, that would have, you know, taken that help to the next level, but they were just honest and caring and kind. And that like, that was miraculous to me. It completely rattled and disoriented me. So yeah, it doesn't have to be like this big thing where you have all these answers. It's just, just kindness goes so, so far. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Just listening and bearing witness is a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you talk about therapy and how it was a long way to get into therapy. There's a, there's a section in the book about this as well called Bad Therapy. <laughs> um, um, and this is a really, this was, this again is something that that we need more awareness about is um, that there is such a thing as bad therapy and, and good therapy. And uh, so tell us, a bit, tell us a bit about your experiences with that. Yeah. So the bad therapy thing, you know, I mentioned it was about seven years before I found a good therapist and started working with a doctor um, and things like that. But I did try to go to counseling several times. I actually went to four counselors and my fifth one was a great fit. 
So there were a few issues there. One was I just didn't know what to look for. Um, I was afraid due to some kind of cultural fears of science and psychology that were pretty common, especially around that time. We're talking like early to mid 2000s um, in the evangelical American church. And so there was like this sort of culture war thing where it was like, if you um, trust science, it's going to lead you astray from your faith. If you trust psychology, it's going to lead you astray from your faith. And so I had some really unbiblical and unreasonable fears. So um, because of that, I was very hesitant to go initially. And when I did, I was thinking, well, if it's a Christian counselor, it's going to be better. And so my only prerequisite was that they be a Christian counselor. And um, so my first, I didn't know anything about training, equipping, personality, um, that there are different specialties. And so I just picked the first Christian counselor I could find. And she was a terrible personality match. Now I know that studies have shown and most good therapists would tell you the most important factor in the success of therapy is the therapeutic relationship. So do you feel safe with them? Do you trust them? Do you guys mesh personality wise? And are you able to work together? So this um, therapist that I saw was, we were not a good fit for each other personality wise at all. Um, my first session with her, I felt um, very run over, almost bullied, um, and very overwhelmed. And so I never went back. My second counselor that I saw, I was like, this time I'm going to get a recommendation. So I talked to a trusted friend and he knew, he was a friend in ministry, and he knew somebody who was the wife of another pastor in town. And, um, or a town over and, um, her website claimed she was a board certified Christian psychologist, which sounded really great. Well, I went to started going to sessions with her and I, I saw her for about three or four months and it was nothing like I expected. She talked for the whole session and, would tell me about really personal challenges she was having in her own relationship with her teenage son without it having any to anything to do with why I was there and um, was always focused on these personality and temperament tests. And I felt like I could never get a word in edgewise with her. So after several months, I, you know, was like i'm i'm coming to see you i'm paying for this it's not it's not working it's not really helping so i like gathered all of my courage and um went into a session and was like hey i just i just don't feel like this is working very well and she said well it's your fault you're the one who is putting up stop signs and you're not open to anything and you won't answer my questions. And so you need to decide if you want to do this or not. 
And that was so damaging because when she said, it's your fault, I heard, you're too messed up for me to help you. Well, years later, as I was doing research for this book, I went to her old website and, um, you know, dug a little deeper and looked at where she'd gotten her degree from. Um, and it wasn't even a real university. She wasn't actually certified. She wasn't actually licensed in my state and she wasn't equipped at all. And I discovered that in many states in the, in the United States and including my home state, you can call yourself a counselor without any licensing or certification mm -hmm. as long as you're acting in your ministerial capacity. So you can be a quote unquote biblical counselor with no training or equipping. You can say you're a pastoral counselor or you can just say you're a, a counselor. And as long as you are acting as a minister, as a pastor, as a church leader, there's, n there's no oversight. There's no um, licensing body to make sure that you're taking good care of your clients and behaving in an ethical way. So that was incredibly damaging because I was going expecting somebody who was actually equipped to understand and help me with mental health and trauma and things like that. But she didn't have the training or the equipping for that. And I had a couple of other difficult experiences as well. But those were the two that were probably the most, um, definitely the most damaging and the most overwhelming and made me very, very wary about trying therapy again. And so it would, it would again take quite a few years before I felt ready to try again. And by that time, I'd actually worked in the mental health field. I'd worked with um, a residential facility that was faith-based, but employed real master's level therapists and, um, you know, used psychiatric medication under the care of a doctor and all of those things, like really approached mental health in a holistic way. And so at that point, I had a much better idea of what, um, what to look for in a counselor and how to get a good recommendation. And so at that point, my experience was wonderful. I found a counselor who, on the recommendation of somebody that I worked with, who was incredible, well-trained, licensed. Um, she did happen to share my faith, but at that point, it wouldn't have really mattered. I was looking for someone who could help me with my mental health. And so the faith aspect was a bonus that she understood where I was coming from with that. But, you know, it, it actually wasn't a big um, centerpiece of our work together. We worked a lot more on mindset and trauma and painful experiences and things like that. So, um, yeah, I learned that it's wonderful if you can find a good licensed, equipped mental health professional who does share your faith, but if not find one who's good and equipped and connects well with you. And that's going to matter a lot more. Absolutely. Absolutely great. Yeah. Um, yeah, the whole Christian counseling thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it, you're right, though. It's really important to find the right 
person who is at, who is properly qualified and who is a good fit with you and yes. um who will listen to you um and understands you and that that all of those things are really really important it's worth despite what you I mean, your story proves that it's worth it's worth kind of trying a few out to get the right therapist yes um, because um getting the wrong therapist or the wrong counselor is not going to help you so yeah but keep trying because there is the right therapist for you um, yes um i was really lucky that with my therapist that a couple of about i think two or three of my friends recommended this same person oh that's um, great and then i tried i had a session with them and it was like yeah from sec from minute one it was the chemistry was right everything was right um that's I awesome felt, I felt safe and supported and stuff and uh it was great i didn't i didn't really know his background before he became a therapist either but it didn't matter he, i knew i knew his qualifications like they're very clear he was qualified and uh it turned out actually later on i found out that he's a pastor he used to be a pastor <laughs> in a former life <laughs> Uh, before you kind of deconstructed and things. Um, and I didn't know that for about almost a year. Um, I didn't, didn't even come up. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, 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 that was proved. It's, it's about getting the right person. Um, and it is worth it because ther- therapy really, really helps. Good therapy can be life-changing and life-saving. Yes. Yeah. Um. One of the things that you that you go on to talk about is um, this kind of idea that you know that that sometimes we do sometimes therapy and medication does kind of bring us out of uh, depression or or, uh, or kind of help us get free of mental illness. But other times it may be, it may be that we have to live we have to live with our mental illness. Um, yeah be part of us so tell us a bit about tell us a bit about that yeah so for many years I believed that there would be a time where I would just overcome you know that's what um that's the kind of stories that are valued that's the kind of testimonies that we like to hear as people of faith like you know, we overcome, we're transformed and, and things change and they're better, you know, and we love those in culture in general. Like we like stories where the bad guy gets his due and the good guy triumphs and everything, you know, they all lived happily ever after, which is wonderful in a story. But for many of us, that's not our real lived experience. And so I had a lot of shame that I kept going through depressive episodes. And, you know, for a while, I I couldn't even accept that I actually had a mental illness. Even that night, I showed up on my friend's doorstep and said, I'm suicidal and I'm self-harming. I would not have said, I have depression. I have anxiety. I have, you know, a mental health disorder. I just thought that it was like a character failure or whatever. So for me, you know, especially as someone with a very early onset of mental health challenges and some traumatic and difficult experiences that contributed to it. And the fact that I've had multiple um, episodes 
all signs point to me probably living with depression for the rest of my life. And that's a difficult thing to accept because we're supposed to, you know, the power of positive thinking, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, We're supposed to be able to overcome just about anything. And so for me, I had to go through a long process of learning to accept this. And it came in stages and little bits and pieces at a time, you know, as I had people come alongside me who would name it in my life and say, you know, I had a wise mentor say, honey, you deal with depression. And I know that because I do too. And you're doing a good job of fighting it, but you need to learn to take care of yourself. To um, others who reminded me of the biblical story of Jacob, who wrestled with God all night and he won, he overcame, he triumphed, but it was simply because he endured. And even after that, he was left with a limp that he needed to learn to live with. And so I discovered that I needed to learn to live with my limp. And this is what it is for me. So that means I need to I needed to learn how to take care of myself really well. I needed to learn my warning signs. I needed to learn that when I start losing motivation and have no interest in things I love like writing or going on walks or creative things, like that's a sign that I'm probably headed into a depressive episode and I need to be a bit more diligent about my self-care to make sure I don't get into a hard place. That means that I need to slow down, that I can't run at the pace I used to. I can't say yes to everything. I need to be diligent about rest. I need to be diligent about boundaries. I need to be diligent about talking to the safe people in my life. And so through this process, I've been able to learn that a lifelong diagnosis is not a death sentence. It's not um, a ball and chain. I'm not doomed to a miserable life. I have a wonderful life that I absolutely love, and it includes depression and anxiety. I mean, this morning, I um, felt super anxious and there was no no real reason for it except maybe I waited a little bit too long to eat. Um, but I know now how to take care of myself so that that doesn't, it, it's not going to destroy me and it's not going to define me. But it is part of my life and it is something that I need to be mindful of so that I can live well despite the pain and despite the depression and despite the anxiety. Mm, that's right yeah and I understand that completely because you know I have anxiety <laughs> I um I'm on the spectrum um I have ADHD um which is yet to be formally diagnosed but I'm pretty pretty confident because of what my therapist has said and other people have said that I have that and it's not not medicated and I have to live with those things every single day yeah and when and even when they're medicated I will have to live with them um, yeah, you're not absolutely. Go so that, like you say, it's a matter of learning good 
self-care practices and being aware um, and paying attention and and knowing yourself um, in those in those instances and having people around you a network of people around you who you can talk to mm-hmm. will support you and will be there for you and will get you through um, I've had periods of suicidal ideation where I've got in touch with my support network I've messaged them I've um, I've had a chat to them and you know it's helped me get out of that that space yeah uh, uh, and you know I've, ta- I've, I've had self-care practices which I've used to help me get out of that space and that you know once you do the work um and you can and you, know, you go to therapy and you, and you build a support network and you know yourself you can start doing these things and um you can you can make sure that even if you're walking with a limp that you have people to carry you um mm, you that's good yeah <laughs> um and yeah, and the other thing that I think which kind of comes from this is setting boundaries and, and self-care and, and all of those things. So tell us a bit about the practices and you know the self-care that, that you kind of put in place to, to, to support yourself. So for me, I had always been taught, you know, there's there's sort of a misunderstanding, you know, because there are studies out there that say things like, for mild to moderate depression, exercise can be just as effective as an antidepressant. And, you know, your diet has a huge impact. And I go into all of those things in the book. But when you are in such a deep and dark place that you can't get out of bed, that you're barely making it to work, that you um, either can't eat at all, you know, which was something that tended to be the case for me, especially when my anxiety would be bad. I'd take like two bites and feel so sick. I'd think I would throw up. Um, or, you know, you're sleeping too much, eating too much, like just not, um, in a healthy balance with your self-care practices. It's almost impossible to go out on a run or, make yourself a salad or do a major overhaul in your life to implement all of these self-care practices. And so the first one that actually really made a difference for me was getting on medication. And you kind of alluded to the fact that when you have these conditions, even if they are medicated, they don't necessarily go away. So once I got on antidepressants, it wasn't like a magic happy pill that fixed everything. It just brought my bottoms up, like brought up the lows so they weren't so low and helped me get stable enough that I could do the work in therapy, that I could examine the lies I believed about myself and the the toxic things that I believed so that I could start rewriting those scripts and start to learn to take care of myself. So for me, it started with meds and therapy. And those things paved the way for me to be able to do all of the other self-care things that I know are really important to me now. So I have changed my diet significantly. Um, Sugar is a major anxiety trigger for me, which is so sad because I love to bake and all of that. Um, I love to cook. So I had to learn a new way to do those things. Um, and I had to learn like 
man, I might like sugar, but I like not having panic attacks more. Mm. Um, and it's not that I never have treats or anything. Like I've found things that work for me and I kind of know my limits. So, um, diet is a big one. Um, exercise does really help, which kind of the flip side of that, I don't really love exercise. So I wish that wasn't true. But for me, I've found practices that are really enjoyable. So I love yoga, um, stretching, going on walks, seeing the sun is huge for me. Um, I definitely have a touch of seasonal depression on top of, you know, Mm -hmm. just like major depressive disorder. And so I have what they call a happy light. It's a light box that I sit in front of for 20 to 30 minutes in the morning, any gray day, but especially like in that season from like January to March, which is always pretty Mm -hmm. tough for me. I, um, every morning sit in front of that light box while I, you know, meditate and pray and journal. Um, and then hobbies, hobbies are really, really important. Um, which is tough because when you are struggling with depression, you tend to lose interest in things that you previously loved. So I try to force myself to do creative things even when I don't feel like it. So I love to draw and paint and sew and bake and um, just make things, just creative things. And so I make time for them even when I have no interest in it and it doesn't sound fun. And over time, they really do help. They help me reconnect with joy. They help me remember who I am and what I love. Um, yeah, so those are those are some big, really practical ones. The other ones I would say is I do keep a gratitude practice, especially when I'm struggling. And I really focus on tiny things. I don't try to be grateful for big things. I try to be grateful for the way my tangerine tasted or the feeling of a warm cup of coffee or a funny thing my sister texted me that my niece said. Um, yeah, because that that really helps me remember there are beautiful things in the world and there's little tiny bits of joy kind of woven through every day. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I saw a few some of those practices as well. And it's all about finding ones which work for you and which benefit you and which you can do. Right. Because um, everyone's different. You know, there's no kind of prescription for every single person. It's, it's um, we all have different ways that, that help us be healthy and things, different things that work for us. But yeah, some of those things you suggested are really good. I, I like journaling as well. Um, especially handwritten journaling. That's something that I do that always helps me. I find me the, too. The periods when I'm journaling are the periods often when my emotional health is better. Yes. Um, and there's actual science, like I've mentioned before on this show, that shows that it actually improves your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health when you're writing out your emotions and journaling them. So um, that's something I do um, that I always suggest to people too. So there's a lot of things that people can do and, and we need to, you know, there's some good suggestions there and um, I'm sure everyone else, everyone can find their own as well, which 
and will know their own which work for them. So, yeah, that's great. Um, so, what? This is kind of we come to the end. What would? What's your one hope for this book? What's the one message you mm. want people to get? Take to take from this book. Gosh. So I wrote this book for three different groups of people. Primarily, it's for people like you and me who've lived with mental health challenges, who maybe haven't felt free to have that conversation in the church. And my first and greatest desire is that people in that boat would know that they are not alone, that God is with them, and that there's really good help available, even if it takes you time to to find it. But ultimately, the thing I say over and over in the book is that I want people to discover they're worth whatever it takes, everything it takes to get better. And when you make that mental shift and believe, you know what, I'm worthy, I'm worth what it takes to get better, then it's a lot easier to fight for yourself. Mm. And I also, I also wrote it, you know, the secondary group is for loved ones, you know, with, um, in a regular pre pandemic year, one in five of us, both adults and children struggle with a mental health disorder that's diagnosable. So everybody either has one or knows, knows someone who does. So for loved ones to just understand what it's like to take a walk in, the shoes of someone they love who's struggling with depression or anxiety and to kind of see some ways that they can be supportive. And then the, the third group I wrote it for is leaders who are, you know, that could be a teacher, that could be a pastor, it could be anybody who leads and cares for people and, again, just wants to understand how to be a better support to them. But my greatest desire and my greatest hope is that people would walk away from it realizing that they're not alone, that God is with them, there's good help available, and they're worth whatever it takes to get better. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I love that. And you're right. I agree with everything you just said. Um, those things are completely true. Um, we're worth whatever it takes to get better, every single one of us. Mm-hmm. So um, thank you, Sarah. Um, and where can people connect with you online? The easiest place to find me is sarahjrobinson.com, Sarah with an H. Um, you'll find links to all of my social media. There, You'll find links to my book, links to my blog. Um, I spend most of my social media time on Twitter and Instagram. So I would love to connect there and you can find links through my website on sarahjrobinson.com. You can also on the book page, um, you can download the first chapter of my book for free. So if you want to check it out, see if it's for you, you can read the forward intro and first chapter for free. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. I do recommend this book, everyone. Um, please do check it out. It's available now. So, um, yeah, um, yeah. Thanks for thanks for for sharing, Sarah, and uh, and thanks for listening, everybody. 